Good morning, good morning, and good morning to you too. This is Law of the Land, and I am Gloria J. Brown Marshall, here today to try to enlighten, inform, empower. And that's what our radio station is about, WBAI 99.5 FM, WBAI.org. For those listening today or listening later by podcast or when you have a chance in our archive, WBAI is here and has been for many, many years to try to cut through all the other stuff. One thing I like about this radio station is that it gives us an opportunity to have more than a sound bite, more than just five people fighting for four minutes of airtime to come up with some quick and catchy phrase. And I've been on those uh, national uh, television news programs and, and, others and radio stations, and you know how short a time period you're allowed to actually discuss something as complex and necessary for our understanding as the U.S. Supreme Court and other laws of the land. And so I'm going to have two guests with me today, but let me first start off with some of the Supreme Court cases you've heard a lot about already. And I'll have uh, our Manuel Gomez, yes, our own Manuel Gomez on later today. But I want to first start off with these Supreme Court cases, just a few of them. One dealt with Native American children. Native American children over the last 200 years, probably much more, but we know over the last 200 years, we don't need to go back as far as I always like to do, which is 400 years. When um, the Europeans arrived on this North American land base and the Native Americans had been there here for a millennia before that, and there was a fight over the land that was taken by the Europeans and, uh, of course, imported the kidnapped Africans to work that land at the point of death, to work the land or die, be murdered. That's what slavery was. Not just you work for free for the rest of your life, generation after generation, but you work for free or be killed. And so the Native American land was taken. We'll take your land or you will be killed. Native Americans still exist. The number is growing. However, one thing that was decided in the 1800s after many battles, some won by Native American tribes, some won by the so-called Calvary, the U.S. Army. That's how they got started. And so it was decided they would have a cultural war whereby they would take the children from Native American families and have them adopted into white families or take them and put them in boarding schools far from their homes where their hair was cut, their religion was denied, and they were forced into either Catholic or Protestant practices and into labor as child laborers. And these boarding schools were propagandist camps and many, many Graves have, have been found filled with the bones of Native American children who were either beaten to death, had died of many different diseases. But the, the core issue is this. In 2023, the U.S. Supreme Court was handed a case where this is the second one in the last 10 years where the issue of what 
can be done when there is a Native American child that wants to be adopted or the child that have white parents who want to adopt this Native American child. Because of what had happened over the last 150 years under kill the Indian, save the man, that was the actual motto, kill the Indian, save the man, meaning kill whether there was culturally Native American in this person and have them be someone who was culturally white American, but looks Native American. And that's the best they thought they could do in this country. Um, at this point, the idea of adopting out Native American children from their families was thought from our U.S. government at the time to be the best option. This case was put before the court again. Is it discriminatory to say as a response to those policies over so many years to then have a policy that says that they're going to try as best they can to have Native American children adopted into Native American families or by them more so than by a white family. And so it was thought, challenge was made, this is discriminatory against whites. All of this, after everything white people have done to everybody of color over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, every single time there's something they want or don't want, all of a sudden now their feelings, of course, mean more than everyone else's. Culturally, politically, economically, socially, religiously, every single blanking time, there's some white person who doesn't get what they want. They believe now we should talk about discrimination because for me as a white person not to get what I want, now this is real discrimination. You're just complainers over here, you people of color. The justices said, and we don't know how long this is going to last, that Native American children shall stay with Native American families foremost when they're, when it comes to adoption because of the policies that had happened so much in the past. We don't know how much longer that's going to last, but that was one Supreme Court case. The other was about student loans. And what President Biden had tried to do through executive order was to give to the Department of Education the power to cancel $30,000 worth of debt and student loan. I've said on this show before, I had student loan debt well into my adulthood, I had to use one of my pension plans to finally pay off my student loans. So you're taking away from your, your um, retirement in order to pay for something from the beginning of your life. So for my college and, and law school and graduate school student loan debt, I have to take away from my um, retirement security. That's how devious the student loan um, programs are. And I had double-digit interest rates on my student loan. So you can imagine what the interest rate was, the penalty was. That's why it took for me to have to cash out one of my pension plan um, and pay that toward my student loan because they were calling me all the time. You're not the only one getting calls all the time, you know, for this. And I was in public service work. So, but then the justices say no to student loan relief that they're not going to allow the power of the Department of Education to determine this. Now, keep in mind what the Congress did, and these older people who already have their established lives then passed a law to say that people could not cancel out their student loan debt in bankruptcy. 
So all of these other people who can um, get rid of their debt in bankruptcy, um, people like Donald Trump, who's been through bankruptcy many, many times, but who, who then just pile on businesses, business after business, the business failed, they get rid of all that debt through bankruptcy. But the student loans for the people who are the working class or the working middle class, or they wouldn't need student loans in the first place, cannot cancel out student loan debt through bankruptcy. They passed a law specifically to to prohibit student loan debt from being canceled through bankruptcy. So we're supposed to stay burdened with this student loan debt. And the people who passed the law, of course, are those people who have already gone through school. And then many of them probably went through using the GI Bill or other ways in which student loan um, tuition was not as expensive to be in a place in which they did not have the kind of debt that I had in my generation and the younger people have today. But that was one of the Supreme Court cases that was, um, unfortunately, one where the court, high court said, no, um, the Department of Education and the president cannot cancel student loan debt in that way. Hopefully that will be revisited in the future. Another case before the Supreme Court and what the Supreme Court does, it begins its term in the first week of October and its last decisions are given at the end, the most controversial ones at the end of June. And then of course they leave the country to try to get away from any of the blowback from their decisions. But in this um, super majority of of six, very conservative, the last three, um, Donald Trump vetted um, Federalist Society made and of course, conservative ideologically grounded, bounded by this, but with chains, um, those um, justices um, are part of the supermajority that don't really give us clear legal reasoning. They have the votes. And so they're not trying to give us the guidance we need as a country that judges need, the lower court judges need in order to have consistent decisions across the board. The Supreme Court has 10,000 plus requests for certiorari, requests for, for review. It only takes about 200 to 250 cases. They're taking fewer and fewer cases each year. And those cases are necessary to decide conflicts within the circuit. If the second circuit, which is the circuit where we are in, in, in our area, um, second and third circuit, those, those in, um, re- re- respectively include uh, New York and Philadelphia, two major um, cities with cases. And the ninth Circuit that includes um, Los Angeles, a major um, city, and, and, and Ninth Circuit is huge; it's the largest circuit, and and quite diverse um, from Los Angeles to um, to uh, Las Vegas. But I want us to think about this: if the Supreme Court justices' decisions, and one from Justice Coney Barrett may be different from the decision of Justice Kavanaugh. We're unclear as what the law actually is, which is one of the crucial um, powers of the court is to determine the law of the land so that we can follow it. The the, um, polls for the Supreme Court, their ratings are the lowest they've been since polls have been taken for the court. But this um, other case I want to talk about, and this is the web designer who had no real um, case but decided that she would ask in Denver, where they had a law against discrimination against people who are gay, if I did not want to design a website for a gay couple getting married, is that within my right or would I be violating the human rights law of Colorado? 
So there was no true case or controversy, which is needed for the Supreme Court to even take the case or for a lower court to take the case in the first place. But the Supreme Court took the case anyway and decided that this web designer could turn away gay people because it violated her First Amendment rights. Now, this becomes a religious case because her First Amendment right to not design a website and design a website is speech. And that's why it would fall in the First Amendment. But her First Amendment right to not design a website, to not give speech or to give a product of uh, a writing um, to a gay marriage is also based on her religious beliefs. So we have both religion and free speech in this case involving the web designer that's based on no case at all because the person who found out that he was supposedly the one that they've been saying contacted her to ask for this website was later astonished to find that his name was being bantied around when he never contacted her. They made this up just so they can rule that this web designer could turn away gay people as a violation of, of and, and, and then overturn the um, human rights law in Colorado and Denver uh, as, as a violation of First Amendment rights. This, this is what we're talking about as far as the Supreme Court being in a position in which they are sending out messages based on the fact that they have the votes. So I can say and do whatever I want because I have a supermajority of six and on a court of nine justices, you only take five to create the law of the land. They have six. They have a chief justice who I believe helped build the Trojan horse that got these conservatives onto the court by gutting the Voting Rights Act of 1965 through his machination that he began, Chief Justice John Roberts, when he was attorney John Roberts and a darling of the conservatives when he came up the theory of how to gut the Voting Rights Act. And that's why they so wanted him to be on the high court. He got just what he wanted, which was to deliver the opinion in Shelby County versus Holder that gutted the Voting Rights Act of the preclearance clause that allowed these changes in the ability to vote of people of color because the African-American vote has been powerful and crucial since black men gained the right to vote in 1870. Please note that, that they would not be taking away our right to vote if it wasn't so powerful in the first place. And so here we now have this mess called the U.S. Supreme Court. We're going to talk about the affirmative action case after we return from this very short musical break. And my guest is going to be Dr. Dana Thompson Dorsey who is not only an expert in educational law, but she's also a party in the case in Florida. Yes, Dr. Dana Thompson Dorsey will join us. We'll be right back on Law of the Land. As you know, as my listeners on WBAI, I care so deeply about you and want to give you the cutting edge information, especially about the law of the land, because it affects all of our lives. Those nine justices in Washington, D.C., making decisions may seem far away from us, but they are part of everything that we do. Law touches every single aspect of our lives. And you've heard a lot about affirmative action so far. And I know you might be saying, but what has that got to do with me? That Harvard case, that North Carolina case. But those cases aren't just for Harvard and North Carolina. Those cases create the law of the land for all colleges, even community colleges, even tech colleges and private colleges. 
So it could be the hygienist program for people who want to be dental hygienists all the way to Harvard or Stanford or Yale. All of the programs then are affected by the Supreme Court decision. And I have with me Dr. Dana Thompson Dorsey, who is an amazing person, a lawyer and a plaintiff in a case in Florida. And Dana, if you don't mind my saying this, because we are friends, thank you. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So we're going to do a deep dive into the case where you are a plaintiff. Tell us, tell yes. us about that case. Well, uh, the, case, the case in uh, Florida is um, ACLU um, versus the, uh, basically the Florida Department of Education uh, and as well as all of the board of trustees uh, at the universities where the plaintiffs um, uh, work. So that would include uh, USF, Uni- University of South Florida, the University of Central Florida, Florida State University, um, Florida Intercontinental University, uh, and so, oh, and University of Florida. And so we are challenging what most people know as the Stop Woke Act, but it is actually uh, HB7. Uh, in the state of Florida. And that law is what is also known as the anti-critical race theory legislation, which now is has passed in approximately 17 or 17 other states uh, in the union. And so in Florida, this particular law basically does not just impact K-12 education, but it also impacts higher education, whereas, um, as you know, being in academia um, is a problem when it comes to academic freedom, um, not just free speech. And there is also an issue uh, as it comes to equal protection, um, the Equal Protection Clause under the 14th Amendment, because the majority of uh, instructors who teach courses uh, addressing race um, are people of color. And uh, so the law is also written in a very vague and a very broad manner. It's very hard to understand, uh, which makes it, of course, hard to implement and follow. So there's also a challenge based on um, the 14th Amendment due process, particularly substantive due process, because of the vagueness. So this anti-woke law, HB 7, are the in Florida and its constitutionality as it applies to both K through 12 as well as higher education? Yes, yes, yes. So those of us who are the plaintiffs are all instructors except for one, which is a student. Uh, And so we have challenged, those of us who are faculty have challenged the law because basically the law says that uh, we cannot teach any courses or, you, you know, teach any content in our courses that says the United States is inherently racist based on its uh, founding and that one race is better than another race or one sex is better than another sex. Um, or, of course, this is the kicker, anything that would make someone in the class feel uncomfortable because we are addressing issues of race or racism or sexism. 
So you are one of those rare breeds, JD and a doctorate. Yes. And yes. And so we need to understand that you were practicing civil rights law and then became someone who's in academia, who then is teaching. And at the same time, you're watching the the incremental, you know, Governor DeSantis-based um, proposed legislation chip away at what has been um, something we take for granted, which is that we're going to begin to teach about all the people who live in this country, not just some of the people, and that we're going to stop with the fairy tales, stop with the George Washington chopped down the cherry tree and could not tell a lie. Let's let's stop with the fact that um, he could tell a lie because George Washington was also a slaveholder. And we we need to tell both sides of the story. Yes, he was a very courageous general who led the Continental Army and defeated the British. And yet he was a slaveholder at the same time who used to take his enslaved Africans out of Pennsylvania every 30 days almost so he could avoid the law that would have set them free on the 30th day. So. These are all contradictions, of course, but we're human and we have contradictions. So these laws seem to take into account the fact that if Americans and others actually know the true history of this country, they couldn't take Mm -hmm. it. Is it that they think we're all so weak minded in this country that we can know about the foibles and the contradictions in other countries, but we can't understand the history of our own country to know that people were not angels who created this country and people who run the country now are not angels. What is it that they want in this anti-woke period? What do they want from, from people of color and what do they want from academics like you? Well, so, you know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that we can't handle, you know, our own truth because it actually um, is written in the Florida statutes in terms of instruction uh, in uh, education, particularly K to 12 education, that students are to learn about uh, the Holocaust in Europe and how that originated in discrimination and racism and bigotry, um, and so uh, so it would never happen again um, in Europe or even in the United States. They are to learn that with regard to the Holocaust, but they are not necessarily learn that when it comes to African-Americans and slavery. So that's in, on U.S. soil. Uh, so that is interesting that you mentioned that. But in, to answer your question about this anti-woke uh, stage that we're in, um, it's, you know, it's all politics, right? This is all politicization and um, a way to message um, this idea that it is uh, terrible for people to be informed of everything that is going on around them currently and how it is uh, planted uh, in the foundation of this country based on history, based on the founding of this country, based on the British coming to the U.S. and forming these colonies that were already in existence. Uh, As I heard you talking earlier about Native Americans, um, we were talking about the, the adoption Supreme Court case of Native American children, Native Americans were here first. That was, that's what makes them Native, indigenous to American land. And the British uh, come to the United States 
and I guess even uh, prior to them, the Spaniards. And they're claiming this land is their own, that this, this land belongs to them. And so we know that the United States was built on uh, this idea of democracy and freedom and equality. But the truth of the matter is it is slave, it was slave labor that built this country. And none of that was based on equality or fairness or justice or democracy. It was based on enslaving a group of people from the continent of Africa um, who did not speak the language, know the culture, um, understand the language or culture, and uh, treating them as chattel or property uh, less than human. But uh, let's 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 circle back. Let's yeah. let's circle yeah. back. Let's circle back to the the, the case. So um, let's if we can talk a moment about the affirmative action case. So mm-hmm. in this affirmative action case, we have a case against Harvard, which is a private university, a case against University of North Carolina. Um, and you attended University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, correct? I was a professor there. So here you have University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. You also, for, based on my, my understanding, attended HBCU at Lincoln University yes. in Pennsylvania. That's correct. So now we have this. This is where worlds come in and intersect. So <laughs> all, all of these cases, these, these two cases and the cases that have been um, to, through the affirmative action uh, mill, have been focused on primarily this idea of of white women, not or particular white plaintiffs or female, not being able to attend these colleges and that that um, University of Texas with the Fisher case. Um, we had um, Gruder and Michigan. Mm-hmm. We had um, these these the, the the Gratz case in Michigan as yeah. well. That. One of the things that came out of it was that race would be one factor among many. So they would yes. take into account whether or not English was spoken as a first language. They would look at whether or not it was a two-parent household or a single-parent household, whether or not the high school the person, the applicant attended, um, was one with high um, um, need for for um, um, free lunches. All these things were taken into account. So for them to choose a you know, and the person behind this is someone who's known for bringing these types of a conservative organization known for bringing these types of lawsuits. They don't want race to be used as one factor, not at all. But the Supreme Court said if someone were to write an applicant, an, an, an essay for entree into these schools as part of their application, they could include having a racial experience that they think would be important for the admissions committee to know. Yes. So as an academic, as someone who's attended an HBCU, historically black college university, um, how does one, if somebody's listening to this, remember this is the time students are applying to schools. How do they apply this, 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 um, this Supreme court decision? What are parents supposed to say to their children? What are the counselors supposed to say to the students when they're applying for schools now? How do they apply this Supreme Court decision to their real life? So, 
So now what will happen, particularly since the Supreme Court, um, particularly Justice Roberts in his uh, writing of the opinion, uh, the majority opinion, uh, mentions that you students can talk about race. They can even talk about their experiences and maybe how they've overcome issues of racism or discrimination based on race um, in their personal essays. So that is something that is not excluded uh, as part of this Supreme Court's decision in overturning the past uh, decisions on a uh, race-based admissions in higher education. Um, so while race cannot be part of the admissions process in terms of the admissions officers and reviewers reviewing applications, they still can consider a student's race if the student has written about race in their essay. So what about a school that doesn't have an essay? I don't know if all schools have essays, and especially since this is going to be, and, I'm, and I know you may not know, I'm just brainstorming. This. We're, yeah. we're, the list, our listeners on WBAI are listening mm-hmm. to our conversation as we try to figure mm-hmm. out what this means, because we have grandparents, we have parents, we have professionals, we have people mm-hmm. who want to go to graduate school. You know, how it's the summertime, it's the midsummer, people are putting in their applications how are, how is this supposed to work? What do you so think? We're in, so with, with institutions that do not have uh, a personal essay uh, as a requirement or even as an option, uh, one thing we have to remember, what has not been struck down by the court is that checkbox. You know, we check boxes on race for everything that we do, and that includes college admission. So admissions departments will still see what people's race or how they how they identify their race by these check boxes on the application. But there's also the consideration of if a student is economically disadvantaged or if they're a first-generation college student or even based on geographic location, which is all part of the consideration that both Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill considers when they're reviewing applications and reviewing uh, students holistically. So that will still be part of the application, even if a personal essay is not. Somebody mentioned, and I think this is actually going back to your HBCU experience, whether Mm -hmm. or not does that mean that HBCUs will be under the gun next? And so that, that is what's interesting. I guess we will have to see. Like, so Edward Bloom, which is the, the man who has been behind um, this mission of eliminating race-based admissions in higher education. So he's been the, he's been the architect behind all of these cases since the late 90s. Uh, and so, uh, and including this, the Harvard and uh, UNC cases against Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill. So, uh, his goal has always been around um, higher education. And I read an interview um, that he did with the New York Times, and the interviewer asked him um, what was next now that he has finally won in terms of higher education. Will it be employment or will it be HBCUs? And, and he said he doesn't quite know, but maybe employment. So it doesn't seem like HBCUs are on his radar right now, but they may be, or another organization 
may take on HBCUs, we, we don't know. Because based on the lawsuits against Harvard and UNC Chapel Hill, was the, you know, not just the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, but also Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which basically says that if an institution is discriminating on the basis of race, color, um, gender, so on and so forth, uh, they will, and they receive federal funding, that money will be taken away. So um, arguably someone could say HBCUs are discriminating, but um, at, when the last time I reviewed um, an application uh, for an HBCU, not meaning for admissions, but just looked at the, the application overall to see what it looked like, um, it does not discriminate on based on race. The, the institution... Uh, mentions that it is designated as an HBCU. Uh, you also now have what um, are minority, uh, predominantly minority institutions, uh, predominantly Native or Hispanic-serving uh, institutions. Those also uh, exist now and have classifications. So in telling the history of the organization or institution, they may say that. But on the actual application, besides the checkbox, it does not say that you have to uh, be of a particular race to apply or to be accepted in our, into the institute. In our last moments, we have about 30 seconds. Um, what do you, what would you tell the student now in midsummer, having gotten all of this bad news from, from one standpoint, um, regarding affirmative action, um, and knowing that the Asian Americans were used as pawns in this because the statistics did not show that Asian Americans were being denied access, but, but, um, Bloom decided to use them because he knew that that would be the wedge issue. What would you tell parents and what would you tell students who are now looking at their educational futures, trying to decide how they're supposed to put their experience um, on their application so that admissions officers can know that there has been obstacles put in their place and before them that they'd have to, they had to overcome um, due to race. So I will say because most institutions require personal statements to definitely talk about that in your, in your statement, many uh, students of color, um, particularly black and, and, and brown students have had experiences with uh, racism um, or discrimination, as well as probably those who are also economically disadvantaged because of the schools they attend on a K-12 level. Oftentimes, uh, they are attending schools that do not receive as much funding. They're attending schools that also may not have the same course requirements um, or course offerings as those that uh, were their white or Asian counterparts may attend that have far more course offerings, such as advanced placement courses or even international baccalaureate programs. Uh, and for those students who may have been able to attend uh, independent school because of vouchers, once again, they may have taken advantage of those vouchers or even charter schools or, or, or magnet schools because their home schools did not have the same uh, academic opportunity um, that that they would have had if they had not attended those schools. So I I would urge students to tell their story and what they've overcome and what they have managed to accomplish in spite of 
some of the disadvantages that they've experienced. Um, and and for those institutions that may not require an essay, they normally Ten have what allow students to write the essay. So I would I would just recommend that they write an essay anyway to tell their story. Thank you so much. We've been joined by Dr. Dana Thompson-Dorsey, that rare, brilliant person with the JD and the PhD, who's an academic as well as a civil rights attorney, you know, someone after my own heart to balance off those things. And she'll be back as we continue to go into our school year as this affirmative action uh, case is applied in K through 12 as as well as academia. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We still have another guest. We have Manuel Gomez. Yes, the Manuel Gomez, who's going to talk about his latest cases. And he's got perhaps, you know, a victory of sword. You know, when it comes to victory with some of these issues, it's, it's sometimes it's just a matter of can we save someone? Or when I say we, I mean my superhero, Manuel Gomez. We'll be right back in 30 seconds. corny with that Illuminati mess. Paparazzi catch my fly and my cocky fresh. I'm so reckless when I rock my Givenchy dress. I'm so possessive so I rock his rock necklaces. My daddy Alabama, mama Louisiana. You mix that Negro with that Creole make a Yes, and you know that's Queen B and Beyonce formation. And um, I want to have Manuel here because every single time this man is putting his life on the line to do good for communities across the country. And good morning, Manuel. Good morning, Gloria. And thank you for having me on uh, Law of the Land. And how are you doing? I know you're out there fighting a good fight, but you're my superhero but I always want to, and, and I will, hope everyone does pray for you to stay protected and in good health as you do these amazing feats of, of good. And, you know, I have the COPD from my 9-11, but, you know, I've just been fighting through it and just trying to help these different cases from Georgia to Kentucky to California to New York and now to Connecticut. Um, my latest case is on a, it's a really disturbing one, people. It's on a guy named Christopher Ambrose, who's a Hollywood screenwriter. He writes uh, shows for the show Bones, B-O-N-E-S. Um, he is now has three charges of child molestation on him from his three children. All three children has filed charges separately on him. Um, he's been molesting them allegedly, for the past uh, three years. I've been on this case now for about two years fighting him. The problem is is that he's a millionaire who's had, you know, $100,000 lawyers, and it's they've been extremely effective in stopping the courts from seeing my evidence. Finally, this past 4th of July, I was able to get the last child away from him. Um, 
you know, he adopted these children, Gloria, and um, these three Hispanic children, um, one of them was a little boy whose mother was extremely poor and gave him up for adoption about 11 years ago. They never let the mother see the baby when the baby was born. They just took the child away from her so there would be no attachment and then gave it to the adopted parent. Long story short, while this child was suffering molestation, the child went online and searched vehemently for his mother, his birth mother. And then the child finally found her online. And the birth mother and the child reached out to me. Um, and I told her what to do and that, you know, charges need to be filed on the behalf of the child because, you know, I couldn't do it. Um, she had to do it. So she came all the way from South Carolina. This is a woman who never saw her birth child. I got her to come down, come to Connecticut and file the charges of molestation and then present my video evidence proving that he's molesting these kids. Um, long story short, uh, the child ran to the birth mother, which was the first time they ever met. And I tell you, I mean, my heart broke. I mean, I, I couldn't hold back the tears from what I saw. And the emotions were so high. But to have this woman come and save this child who she'd never seen before, and now on the 4th of July to have new meaning of freedom and independence for an 11-year-old. And um, I'm in a fight today. Actually, in the next two hours, I'm going to be in court um, because now the, the case is going in front of the juvenile court with the two brothers and sisters all together simultaneously showing that this monster, who they call dad, was abusing them. I actually have videos of them. Uh, he took the door handles off the doors, and I have the videos showing him in the living room with all the door handles off so he could easily molest the children at night. And every time these kids told their teachers or reported it in school, nobody would do nothing. They reported the child services, child services failed them. They reported it to the courts, the courts failed them. They reported it to the police, the police failed them. This guy's you know, skills was writing stories for television shows, fictional stories making them believable. So, he was able to spin a lie to all these different agencies because this is what he does for a living and prevent these children from having their rights. So for the past two years, I've been fighting so hard for these children, and I finally got all three of them together out of this monster's house this 4th of July. And I asked everybody out there, you know, to pray for these kids. You know, one his name is Mia, one his name is Matthew, one his name is Sawyer. And to pray for them because... They need our help. They need, you know, our prayers um, because the system has now taken over two years. Now, this Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial has been flushed down the toilet. And I have overwhelming evidence from the two hard drives that his ex-wife took from Christopher Ambrose, which showed he had over 700 pictures of young boys, male Hispanics, on his computer. And then he had boys being rectally penetrated, forcibly. Well, we, for, we, have, to, we have to say, until it's proven, 
all of this is allegedly. And well, so I just want to make sure. Yeah, we want to make sure we're clear. Yes, sure. that this is all allegedly what happened, allegedly what's going to be shown in court later on, as you said, later on today. Well, that's what I'm going to show. I'm going to show I'm here to drop the hammer on this guy. I'm here to close the lid on the coffin because this guy is nothing but evil. He's, he's He makes Putin look like a schoolboy. That's how this guy is. And he's got white, white, tail white hair. Uh, the guy is like tail white. He looks like a character out of a James Bond villain movie. It's insane. You know, and the fact is, is what's more insane is that these judges have entertained him and denied the children's rights for two years. You know, this goes back to when we, you know, last time you had me in the show, I wrote a piece of legislation called the plea you could, I mean, the Truthfulness of Decision Act to bring accountability over judges. We have so many judges that violate our rights and take three and four and five years to bring someone to trial. It's like the Sixth Amendment, the right to a speedy trial is in the toilet. It's like, it almost. But you know what? I would, I also want to make this other point that goes back to what we talked about with the Native American Adoption um, Acts and, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. when you have a white couple adopting a yeah. child of color or adopting a yeah. child of a, a, a different race or ethnicity, the assumption is that that, that couple is almost angelic that they would go out of their way to to adopt an Asian child or African child or African-American or Latino, you know? And so who's going to be believed? Who's going to have the credibility, you know, this, this, this white couple or white father or the children of color. So I think that's another issue here. Well, they, these are children of color. And, and I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, you know, these are dark skinned Hispanics. And, um, and, you know, these came from very poor areas, and the mothers that gave them up were all, you know, literally bordering starvation. And, um, and now for me to, you know, the, 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 the married woman that Mr. Christopher Ambrose was married to, he did everything to get rid of his wife once she uncovered the fact of his fetishes with young boys and what he was doing when she found out. This is while I was hired. So she brought the hard drives to me so that I can examine them forensically to just download what information was on there. And the information I got was disturbing. And the more I looked into it, the more disturbing. And then I tried to present it to the court. I actually got up on the witness stand. I actually sat next to the judge. And then as a, just as I was about to open my computer and present the evidence, his $100,000 lawyers said, Your Honor, Your Honor, we need a sidebar. And then all of a sudden, I don't get to speak. They, they stopped the evidence from coming in. And this guy literally, in his chair in court, clapped his hands. Gloria, I wanted nothing more but to jump out of that seat and strangle him because... He knew that he stopped me giving those children justice and got them back under his control. And then two weeks later, these kids reported them again to child services. You know, child services, Gloria, is a systemic problem we have nationwide that they keep failing our children. How many children have to die? 
How many parents have to not get justice before we overhaul that broken down agency? It's disgusting. And then they have the audacity to call themselves investigators. And Gloria, I've dealt with at least 30 of them. None of them are trained in investigative skills. So it just blows my mind how, you know, a child can tell you, help, help, I need help, this is what's happening to me, I have black and blues and stuff, and they don't do anything. How many children died last year in New York and Connecticut from child services not doing their job? Would you like to know? It hurts me to even say it. Over 70. 70. One child's life is too many. But over 70. Come on. Come on. You know, I keep going to the politicians. I'm, I'm out there fighting the fight and trying to get them to put these legislations out there to bring justice to people. And all I keep getting is the dance. I got a better chance of dating J-Lo and hitting the Powerball than getting these people to make a change in the system. You know, people, we really have to vote. We really have to get involved. You know, I know Gloria's talked about voting God knows how many times on her show. And you know what? And she's right. If we don't get involved, we can't change this system. Legislation, we have to do demonstration to legislative changes. And we have to fire the people that are in office. People, most of these politicians, they don't even write a bill. They don't even know how to write a bill. I cannot even tell you how ignorant I've spoken to so many of them. And, and I look at them and they look at me with like the deer in the headlight look. And I'm like, my God, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. They got some guy in the back doing it for them. And, and this is the problem I'm having. And now with this case, I'm hoping now that I've got it in juvenile court and took it out of family court that these kids can get some kind of justice. But I so the case, tell, tell us about the case, and we're down to our last moments, but tell us about the case that you're going to be making today. I'm going to be making the case today that I have evidence proving that Christopher Ambrose is a child molester and that these kids should not be with him and they should receive orders of protection. I'm making a case also that his birth mother, his biological mother, should get rights to see her child. I'm making the case that these children should be put in safety and kept out of harm's way. And I'm making a case that the Madison Police Department that failed them numerous times should not be involved with them at all. That's the case I'm making today. That's the hammer I'm going to drop on the system. And, and where where is this court proceeding going to take place? New Haven. I'm actually pulled over again on the side of the road because mm. I was on my way there. All right, because I'm on my way to the New Haven court, the juvenile court, to drop the hammer on them. And you well, know what? This 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 um, radio station has broadcast that reaches to New Haven for those listeners who understand the importance of what's taking place here. You may find that some supporters are going to be in that courtroom with you today because Amen. they are hearing your voice on WBAI and they will, if they can be in that courtroom to help support you and those children. And I want to say to everybody out there, you know, um, if you need help, please call me, 347-867-6242, 347-867-6242. And also, people, please support WBAI. If it wasn't for institutions like this 
and glorious show. We got to keep this show running. Donate to them because it shows like this that gives the voice, the voiceless a voice. Let me say that again. WBAI gives the voiceless a voice. And I thank Law of the Land and may God bless Gloria Marshall and what you do. And thank you for your time. And thank you on behalf of Sawyer, Mia, and Matthew. May God bless all of you. And if you ever need me, call me. And if I don't pick up people immediately, call me like I owe you child support. Because I won't pick up. <laughs> you know we all God love you, Manuel. Manuel, take care. Take care. Be surrounded by all of the strength that is, is out there spiritually that can protect you from the forces because I know there are forces that want to see you harmed and we all at WBAI want to see you win. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Amen. Thank you. God bless you all. And you heard this is Manuel Gomez, our superhero on WBAI Law of the Land. And he said it. 212-209-2950. That's the number to support this program. 212-209-2950. 212-209-2950. Become a BAI buddy. Become a buddy and tell them, I'm here to support Law of the Land. And he said it for you. Where else are you going to get that much time to hear about these cases? Where are you going to hear from someone like um Dr. Dorsey, who's not only a civil rights attorney, but an academic and a plaintiff in the case? against Ron DeSantis' anti-woke legislation. When are you going to get this information and not just a soundbite of a few moments with them, but to allow them the time to actually express themselves? We give that platform to you, 212-209-2950, become a supporter of Law of the Land on WBAI. And for those of you who heard me last week say that the report on the status of Black women and girls, which is a biennial report, this is a report, the only ongoing report on the state of Black women in America. I have been working on this report through my organization, the Law and Policy Group, for nearly 20 years and so we have our report this year that's going to be coming out. Join us for free at the Brooklyn Library, July 29th, 1 p.m. July 29th, 1 p.m. And that's the Central Library of Brooklyn on the, um, the Parkway. Come out to Brooklyn Public Library Saturday, July 29th at 1 o'clock to hear a presentation, our launch of the most recent report on the status of Black women and girls. All are welcome. All are welcome July 29th at 1 p.m. Brooklyn Public Library on the Parkway. This has been a lot. Um, we've given you a lot, hopefully, and we hope that it's enough for you to continue to support Law of the Land, continue to support WBAI. Once again, 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. As Manuel Gomez said, Law of the Land gives a voice to the voiceless. Help us to continue to do that. And until next time, I'll see you on the radio.